This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sobe Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Today's guest is a legend in his own right. He is a film and program maker, a YouTuber, and he has recently confessed to kissing Mike Tyson's tiger. You will have to listen to hear more about that one, trust me. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest on One for the Road, Mr. Mark Adderley. <laughs> Hi, Mark, my favourite man ever. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm very good. How are you, Squire? I'm really, really good. And I'm so happy to have you on because um, the amount of times that we've uh, been meaning to meet in the last few months, and it's just been crazy. Then we went into lockdown and I feel like I know you so well, yet we've never met. It's true. It's true. It's, it's the same with you. I mean, I feel like you're the brother from another mother lover no i don't know from another <laughs> lover that would be a bit strange uh yeah no you're right but i mean there's that immediate sort of connection isn't that we know we know what gene pool we come from do you know what i mean and i don't mean that in a horrible way i mean insofar as we both are part of this strange journey called sobriety we are but i still feel like there's a, a deeper connection because you're mad you know and crazy absolutely and 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 you're absolutely insane and crazy and and, and that's right yeah. yeah, it does help. It does. And I do th- I do think that's an important... I think we connect, you're right. I think we connect on the fact that there's something deeply Monty Python-esque about the dilemma we find ourselves, Absolutely. <laughs> we find ourselves in. We've both got beautiful wives. Absolutely stunning, gorgeous. Amazing kids. Yeah. I'm saying all this because they'll probably be listening to this when it comes out. Your wife is one of the greatest wives in the world. Mine is one of the most beautiful in the world. Do you think we've covered it? Um, hold on. Yeah. She's stunning. And what a presenter she is. She's oh, the she's just... best one on Loose Women. She's yeah, yeah, yeah. incredible. Yeah. Especially, you know, I mean, if you had a choice between her and Denise Welsh, I mean, it's quite obvious. You'd go for Denise. I mean, Nadia. Uh, yeah. uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
anyway, mate, that's that's uh, I want to really talk to you uh, in depth about yeah. where it all began your childhood. I don't know that part of you. We've chatted many yeah. times about our drinking days and whatever, but I'd really, really love to go back to um, where you grew up, what your childhood was like, and your parents. Okay. And yeah, uh, well, I mean, I was born in 1970 uh, to obviously my mother and uh, my father. Um, in, in Birmingham. We, I was born in Birmingham. I was, bo- I was born in Hansworth General Hospital. Uh, my nan and granddad lived up in Birmingham. And then my mum at the age of, I, when I was two, so my mum was 20 when she had me, but when I was two, she left my father. So my first memory, my first ever memory, which is very vivid, uh, was a fight between my mum um my father and whoever the chap was that she was leaving my father for and so that that was my first ever ingrained memory and it's weird because many years I, I so I, I grew up not knowing my father and I'll explain that my mother then ran to London essentially with this chap but the reason I can kind of like confirm that as a first memory is I'd had that memory for years and when I finally met my father later in life I told him that memory and he remembered that moment it was really odd because, of course, we'd had no way to kind of even cross check that. So I must have been I must have been two or under two when that when that first memory sort of went in. So I essentially I don't know my father. I, as I say, I did meet him when I was old, in older life. But that's a whole sort of other complicated story. So it was just me and my mum. She ran off to London via, weirdly, Whitley Bay in the northeast. Um, and then we landed in, uh, well, Labrick Grove in London and you know, now that's like, a, you know, it's such a posh part of town. It's like Notting Hill and all that kind of stuff. But we were in a basement flat. My mum's boyfriend at the time that she came to London with, he, he, he essentially put us in the flat. We all stayed there. We lived with him. I lived with him and lived with her. It's a one bedroom flat. But it was a very, I mean, I don't know if you know, I mean, in terms of London, it was a very sort of ethnically diverse very working class very you know very ordinary neighborhood it wasn't wasn't gentrified like so many parts of london are now it was it was very authentic and very it's where carnival was carnival was a smaller affair back then it was very you know it was just very sort of down to earth and that's where i grew up i lived there until the age of 11 and at the age of seven my mom obviously split up with this chap but he kept the flat going and sort of helped her uh, pay for it so it was just me and my mum my mum came out as gay when I was seven uh, and then from there on in um, she had relationships with women uh, for the rest of her life and so that's kind of you know so I came from Birmingham down to London living in an area of London which is weird because whenever I talk about where I grew up everyone now goes oh you must be a posh kid because you came from Blenheim Crescent and all this kind of stuff but you know I went to the local state primary was going to Holland Park which was the local state comprehensive so it was a very I would say sort of lower middle class upbringing. You know, I always felt the helping hand or the support of my grandparents because my mum was essentially a single parent. But my mum was a very chaotic person. She drank a lot. She had lots and lots of relationships. She was very promiscuous. Uh, She had huge battles with drugs. And so, you know, I mean, there's a catalogue of sort of experiences and things that went on between you know, a very early memory of two, but say between four and 11, let's say take that chunk as the first part of my childhood. Uh, there was a lot of, I experienced a lot of extreme behavior around alcohol, around drug taking, uh, around violence, domestic abuse and sex. Um, so it was a very, 
it's weird because you know the weird thing i always find sorry if i just keep going on i'll just the, the weird thing i find about childhoods and when we talk about childhoods and you know people often say that thing did you have a happy childhood i think all children have happy childhoods i think all children i think the wonderful thing about children as a father to four daughters is they are programmed we are programmed as kids to find the best in whatever we're offered and it's that thing, isn't it? Like, I remember years ago when I took our eldest girls out to Marrakesh, we were filming out there. And, you know, and they were seeing the extreme poverty of kids running around. And yet they, t I remember, I think it was Kiki or, or, or Maddie turned around to me and said, God, they look so happy. They look so, and it was that strange contrast. You know, I think when you're a kid, whatever you're going through, you find the bits that make it fun. So for me, you had this sort of background, if you like, of um, quite literally sex, violence, uh, drink, drugs, suicide attempts, all this kind of stuff, coupled with the magic of Marvel Comics and Star Wars coming out and not having the same action figure as my mate William up the road uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it was, you know, when I look back, I think when we get older and we start to kind of almost do an, an audit or an inventory on our childhoods and our lives, then you can look back and you start to go, oh, you know what, that self-sufficiency back then, the way I dealt with being bored or the fact I tell you what the other thing that happened a lot and actually this is important in terms of the story of drinking whilst there were all those sort of acute problems going on if you like I was left on my own an awful lot and this is something that I'm really keen to talk about in a more sort of formal you know because I think abuse and neglect can happen in very different ways it can happen actively and as a sort of outward move towards you but can but it can also happen and I don't blame my mum I'm very close to my mum but it can also happen in a very indirect way through neglect, benign neglect, and just being literally left on your own. So I remember huge, huge swathes of my childhood being on my own, playing, having fun, but also being quite scared, you know, and quite nervous and quite anxious. And I'm quite an anxious, but well, I'm a very anxious person. That's one, that's one of my major, major sort of faults, really. And that's where alcohol much later in my life really sort of fixed that, that anxiety. And so... I think you can probably get a sense from that, that that was that was the sort of melting pot. And it is all you're right. It's always interesting to hear from people, you know, what was their, you know, what were the kind of constituent elements of that childhood that laid the groundwork for whatever it was that came next? And that was my childhood. And yet, you know, now I've got to the point at the age of 50 where I look back and I do see all the lovely bits of it, all the bits of creativity and all the bits of friendship and all the bits of, you know, gallows humour in there. But I also do recognize that there was a lot of trauma mm. a lot of trauma in there trauma is the word isn't it yeah you know i i love gabor Marte. i look at a lot of his stuff and that and uh it, it doesn't sound the easiest of um childhoods <laughs> at all but as you say when you're a child you look at all the magic and yeah when i was growing up i mean i lived in croydon and mm. we had mitchum common and we used to have this little back alleyway where we would go up and through over the seven islands it was called yeah, uh, and we used to do some with the nets and catch the stittle back and that, and we'd go out in the morning, come back. Or oh, sound really old now. Brown as <laughs> berries for our <laughs> dinner, and um, you know, and and I I remember too some amazing amazing times. And you move on so much quicker when you're a child. You don't analyze yeah. things, do you? you? Just crack on. Exactly. Um, but when when I look at it now, where well, I philosophize over it, there was elements of trauma my my mum left my dad when I was 14 and then pretty soon after that he met someone else and I right. felt like you I felt really really lonely and isolated and almost rejected because mm. like 
my mum went on to have a 45 year relationship with this man and it, I'm, I'm really close to him now but at the time when you're 14 mm. it, it's it feels like rejection and that is around yeah. the time that I actually started drinking uh, and that soothed the pain so how old were you then how old were you when you started drinking 14 14 right yeah that's about the same age I was when I had my first yeah and, and I think people of our age albeit you're slightly younger young man um <laughs> That was what we used to do. There was an area called the Circle, and um, we'd moved by then. So I was living in Carshall, and, and we, there were the shops, and there was an off-license. You'd say to a bloke, here, mate, can you get us a couple of cans or whatever, and just hang around the shops, and that was your evening entertainment, you know? Yeah. And then it wasn't long after that that you could just go in a pub because of the you didn't have ID, and that was your life, really, wasn't it? It really was. And I mean, I think pub drinking really was, was it? I mean, there were so many things that worked in pubs favours then. No ID, so no tech. People didn't really give a damn. Um, and it cost nothing. I mean, even relative to then, do you know what I mean? You know, you could you could scrimp, scrimp together a bit of pocket money or you didn't use your money for your school meals or whatever it was, yeah. a couple of pints. And you never got quizzed, did you? You just go to the bar. And you, the thing is, you felt like a grown-up, didn't you? Yeah. You were ordering a pint and that. And, you know, I remember I've mentioned before, I had a tattoo when I was 14, um, Barry Levain in Tooting, and he, he was an alcoholic and he used to wear a Stetson. <laughs> and um he you wouldn't ever go there in the day because he was he was withdrawing from alcohol he was shaking so you didn't want to get that from him then um so you go like after school and you could basically turn up in your uniform roll your blazer up and get a tattoo wow. but um, he's still there he's not still there he died Right, closest to the liver. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. But, um, his studio's still there, and I well, you know where Garrett Lane is. It's up yeah, absolutely. And, and when you drive past, it's still got the original sign there. Has um, it? Yeah, and um, it's like a tattoo. You, yeah, if you if you Google um, Barry Levain tattoo parlor in the seventh, there's a picture of him through yeah. this little arch with a, like a kid having his own talent. It might have been me. It might have been you, isn't, yeah. isn't that it's, weird? It's fascinating. He used to drink whiskey chases and lager and, and smoke a cigar. And, and it's like, you know, with everything these days, it, it's so different. Um, I remember, I think I remember in those early days. I mean, it's funny because I don't know what, so, so was your first experience, Dave, like drink, would you say that your first drinks or drink Happened in a pub? No, no. Yeah. I, I think it was hanging around my friends and they, yeah. they got some cider or something. But I was talking to William Porter the other day about um, me going to a holiday camp when I was 14. And my mum, before she left, she bought a barley wine. Do you remember barley wine? Oh, that does ring a bell, yeah. yeah. I, I think it was 10%. Yeah, and and she had a glass of it and I took a big mouthful out of it when she wasn't looking and I was all over the shop. You know, I was I was just turned fourteen. You know, and it's it was funny, really... but you say you were you say you were all over the shop. That's really interesting because almost at the identical same age. Because I was thinking, obviously, the pubs came in, but the first time I remember getting drunk to blackout, I vividly remember it. I mean, there was one time where a friend of mine brought a bottle of gin into class, and in our form class at eight thirty in the morning or eight forty-five or whatever it was. He was passing it around between me, him and someone else. And we were drinking and the teacher came in, could smell it. And the rest of that day just blacks out for me. Because I just remember us being escorted from the room. And I don't even remember what happened to the rest, for the rest of that. But the first time I remember feeling that, you know, the, the, the quintessential shame, right? The shame. I don't know if I've shared this story with you before, but occasionally in AA, I think I may have done. 
I went on holiday with my first girlfriend. So I had a long-term girlfriend from about the age of 14 to 18. Single parent, likewise, we connected. It was like a sibling thing as much as a kind of boyfriend-girlfriend thing. Anyway, we go on holiday to Ibiza with her mum and her mum's boyfriend. Her mum is a drinker and da-da-da-da. My girlfriend isn't a big drinker. I'm what? I'm probably 15, 15 and a half. And uh, there's a bottle of whiskey in one of the rooms. And I remember just constantly pouring the, a bottle of whiskey, whiskey, I mean, I've never, into the, into the top, taking the top off and pouring it into the lid, going behind a curtain and nicking it. And then, and then we carry it all carry on. Now, I'm going to cut, as a filmmaker, I'm going to edit hard to the end of the night, just to give you a sense of it. By the end of the night, I'm clambering on my girl's mother <laughs> with no clothes on. Oh, no. And I'm clearly, I'm going to keep this clean, but clearly aroused. Oh, no. And, and then, and then the, the evening disappears. And then I come round the next morning. And, uh, yeah. It's a gift. And my girlfriend says, do you remember trying to mount my mother? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, you're joking. Oh, no. She said, you did. And of course, you know, I mean, it's, the detail of it is only coming back to me now, but I had no experience of what it meant to regret or shame or be fearful or worry. It was the first time. And I was just like, oh, my God. And so I went into a big people pleasing thing. We, would, we went on a tour of the island and I, I, I couldn't escape this image that this mother in law figure had seen me legging it around as a, an aroused teenager. It was just so embarrassing. I'm there you go. Gonna listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether you then have to put explicit somewhere. Sorry, I, try, I tried to keep it as family friendly that, as possible. Honestly, that was hilarious. That that was one of the first. That and when I look back, I th I always think back to that moment as a kind of that was an that was an alarm. But you know, that's one of the first alarm bells. That's when I that's when I sort of look at my my early drinking years and I go, shit, the first time you you had unfettered access to the and then that was the difference you know because you're right you go into pubs you can only buy as much as you can buy and even if you've got a friend bringing a bottle of gin it's just a bottle of gin but this was like this was like a mother of a this mm. was an adult was had the alcohol mm. you know, and I, I just didn't know how to stop so that was the first of many embarrassments whiskey as well that's, oh it's, I, i've done that i've drunk a bottle of whiskey before and i literally it feels like i'm just Oh. vomiting up my entire stomach after it's, well, it's such a depressive as well isn't it it twists your brain up as well and i'm a big believer in this different alcohols twist your brain up in Absolutely. different ways you know what i mean yeah they really do so moving on from that mate um, <laughs> <laughs> quickly yeah there you go <laughs> here's an eye opener for you sorry listener <laughs> moving on from mounting your girlfriend's mother um <laughs> what about your 20s and uh, it's what yes. like. Um, oh, that's a good question. I mean, I I don't know how old you were when you first became a parent. I mean, I became a parent for the first time when I was 23. That's young. Yeah. So I went off to college. Uh, again, many other instances in there of extraordinarily chaotic, dangerous drinking, you know, drinking to the point, for example, one other notable occasion, drinking so much one night when I was 16 after a night at a summer job. Uh, and staggering between the tube line on the tube lines from Northolt on the central line to Greenford, which was where we'd moved to by the time I was in my teenage years. Uh, I'm just staggering along there, falling in between the tracks and falling towards a 
a maintenance tube that was passing through the night, you know, so just, you know, when I look back, I just have those, it's like a montage, isn't it? It's like a movie montage. So, you know, moments like that, total stupidity. And then went to college, went to uni, had the normal kind of obligatory, you know, freshers year, madness, drink, drugs, sex, you name it. And then met the mother of my eldest pretty much towards the middle or end of the second year at college. And then a very different kind of thing kicked in. And because I became a, you know, we, we were in a committed relationship. We bought a house together. Uh, I was the first person in my peer group to kind of get a job. I got a job as a an editor and then a journalist for a, a, a TV station that the Evening Standard was running in London. It was all very, it was very fast moving and it was very quick and it was very, in inverted commas, successful quite quickly. Um, so I had money and I had money. But of course, we then had a baby on the way at 23. And my 20s, the early 20s, drinking became, well, when I just weird, when I think back to it, it's almost like I've purposefully blanked out what drinking was back then. Drinking had to be pushed down. And so drinking, I think I had an awareness that I could drink too much. I had no awareness, you know, none of us had this awareness of sobriety, you know, what? Problem with drinking? You just can't handle your drink. What's wrong with you? Come on, you just got to reduce it a bit here or da-da-da-da. So I still drank, but I was enforcing control in a massive way to not wreck having a family, having a young family and being, you know, with, okay, we weren't married, but essentially, you know, we may as well have been, we had a house and what have you. And at 24, 25, that control blew. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Well, the doors blew off and they blew off in the most spectacular fashion. And to this day, it makes me very emotional to talk about it, but to this day, that moment where I essentially threw drink and it was all through drink. I think drink, it's really important to talk about how alcohol facilitates lots of other problems and it facilitated the problem of infidelity you know, you know, there's that old adage, isn't it? Oh, well, if you got drunk and you did that, then you always wanted to do that. I don't agree. I don't agree. I think you get drunk and you just do stupid shit. You know, what might be an idle thought, an idle thought isn't an act of betrayal, but an idle thought becomes something that is an act of betrayal once you've got a drink in you. So basically, I did stupid things. I was unfaithful. I fucked it. And and I had to. And, I, and, and then after sort of trying to keep the relationship together, I moved out. And so... Going back to your question, you know, long answer to your question, what was drinking like in the 20s? It was, it was, I tried to keep an absolute lid on it whilst I became a parent and the early years of parenting. That lid blew off. When it blew off spectacularly, I ended up losing my relationship. I then had to leave the home with Izzy, my eldest. To this day, it's the most distressing and upsetting thing that's ever happened, even though I know that everything that, you know, I don't live in regret. I know that everything that's come subsequently has been brilliant children, life, da 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 da. But when I go back to that moment, the nowness of then, it was the worst moment. And then, of course, what then happened for the rest of my 20s, I drank on it and it literally just doubled down, doubled down, doubled down. And I have to say this as an honest thing. This is not, you know, you could argue this is a really harsh thing to say about how my second daughter came into the world. But I will say this because it's it's true. I love I love my second daughter. I love all my daughters equally, as, as you do with any children. But Fleur, my second daughter, definitely came out of that five-year explosion of regret, remorse. Drink, 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 drink. Just want to, don't want to feel this, can't feel this, can't feel this. And I ended up getting to 29, 30 with two daughters uh, and not living with either of them. And not, 
not being in their lives in the way that I'd always said as a child, I will not do what my father did. I will be there for them. Mm. <sighs> well, there's the best thing to drink on, isn't it? Mm. Oh, of course I'll drink on that. Yeah. You know, so, so that was, it's interesting that you asked that. I've never, I've never had to kind of encapsulate my twenties so sort of neatly, but that, that, that's it. The, you know, the three, almost the three sections of my twenties. Mm. I can relate to that as well yeah. because yeah. I um I separated from my son's mother when he was like 18 months old and and it was not for infidelity but it it just didn't work out and and a right. lot of it was because I was just drink she didn't drink and um I I was my drinking was absolutely out of control and luckily me and his mum have a good relationship. Me and George have an excellent relationship and it's all worked out really well. Um, and then after that, I just literally pissed out my 30s and 40s. But in my 40s, it was drinking in, at, at home. That was pub life, 40s was, you know. Um, but yeah, so I can relate to that. So after that, um, what happened then? Well, then, so, yeah, so where am I? I hit 29, 30. I'm, and, you know, it's interesting when people use this phrase, high-functioning alcoholic. I always thought that meant, you know, I don't know, you're a judge or something and you're an alcoholic or you're, a, I don't know, a prime minister and you're an alcoholic. I mean, high-functioning just means you can function in the world, you know, as in you can keep a job and you can carry on presenting to certain parts of the world as normal. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, you know, so yeah, so end of my 20s, going into my 30s, I, you know, I met my wife now, Nadia, when I was 33, 34. So I had prior to meeting her, I probably had between 29 and 35, I think, obviously, things were just getting faster, and more furious. And there would be bouts of, for example, I remember, I remember traveling around Indonesia for a month with a, an ex-girlfriend, completely sober, felt great came back boom went it went into it even harder so lots of that lots of sort of attempts at controlled trying to control my drinking friend of mine who from uni who uh was a a buddhist he was trying to get me to go into some kind of retreat because he could see that i was really you know boomeranging between you know bungeeing between these extremes of sort of trying to completely put it down and not so I, i would characterize 29 to 33 32 33 as really you know a sort of a spiritual or a fundamental knowledge that this was in some way going to kill me if I didn't get a grasp on it um and then of course I met my wife and she's about when we met we were both as as rock and roll as as you come I mean you know right down to me doing jobs where I was hanging out of helicopters flying over the Andes with the Chilean RAF snorting cocaine off their off the dashboard of a fucking army helicopter i mean it was lewd i mean it was ludicrous i mean it was it was it was so ludicrous it was like something out of the hangover movies you know you sort of i wouldn't be at all surprised if there's a photo of me somewhere i don't know kissing mike tyson's tiger um and that's not a euphemism by the way but it, you know and it was <laughs> and it <laughs> and it i mean so it was crazy and so you know those first couple of years so me and me and nadia getting together my my current wife very much was the tail end of that sort of you know stop drinking don't drink 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 stop drinking try and drink drink so it was I, I was going into kind of like you know oh, yeah, real yeah. sort of ups and downs peaks and troughs of trying to control it until about 
34, 35, and then how, how many years sober am I now? Six, 16 years sober. And then, and then really, I think we've talked before about this, but I'll say it again, you know, it, it, it took, it took me knowing that I was about to do all the same things again that I'd been doing in the past. And it took my wife telling me as we were about to have at this point, my third daughter, uh, or we've just had my third daughter telling me you're going to lose your third daughter. Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't believe in God conventionally, but you know, there, but for the grace of something, mm. I literally booked myself in to rehab like a hotel. I remember walking up to the place and saying, I want to come in there. So we don't often have people self kind of <laughs> self booking. I said, yeah, I said, just to let you know, I'm going to go and drink for two weeks and then I'll be here. And I did. I lost, two, I lost two weeks just beforehand. I don't know why I just, I have to this day, I can walk through so and I'll get flashbacks of moments. Yeah. We'll just come back and I'll be like, Oh my God, I came out of the century club. Oh fuck. I remember coming out. <gasps> oh, what an ass. All that. And, um, and then I got sober. And then that's a whole, as you know, that's a whole different journey, isn't it, of highs and lows of trying to stay sober. It absolutely is. But I think um, what's different for you is that back then, 16 years ago, it's quite different, Ooh. isn't it? Because you, yeah. you, I mean, these days we've got the sober communities, we've got social media. And social media is massive. I mean, and can I just say to any listeners listening, you know, this is what Sober Dave does so well. Um, and so many other people like you, but you, you do it particularly well is, you know, and I, I, you know, on our social media platforms, me and Nadia, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, being in a relationship that strives to push through alcoholism. You know, int it's interesting being parents as our children start to grow up and they start to drink. You know, there's all of those issues. But you're right. This this device, these devices, these platforms, the ability to hear. So I remember it's interesting you should say that because I remember when I was first in rehab, when I first came out, I remember someone sending me what must have been an mp4 or something mm. saying this is a recording of an aa meeting and it was like as rare as hen's teeth mm. and they said this is a recording of an alabama aa meeting back in and i remember listening to it on a crackly old thing going all oh, right this is really useful i could really do with this and this was before tech so i think you're right it, it was a different age you know 16 years ago we were shipped out in in vans to aa meetings um, we've talked before about how, you know, AA really, really was really beneficial to me very much at the beginning of my sobriety. And yet I've nicked, I've kind of nicked bits of it, which I use in my day-to-day -day life now, but I'm certainly not a sort of aa -er, so to speak. It's just been one part of my journey, but you're right. I wish if all of this had been available, I, I, you know, it's such, it's such a rich, there's such a rich opportunity out there at the moment to, to sort of pick and choose between different brands of sobriety in a sense there are i mean you know sober coaching yeah there's so many different things available now but being part of a community and what we found over lockdown is you know we all know what zoom's done for so many businesses with meetings and whatnot you know but to to have online meetings where you can just connect with people yeah it can yeah. save you, you know. Oh, absolutely. Like there, there's um, people there that do literally go sometimes hour to hour. Yeah. And by having connection with someone who's like-minded and can relate to that person can make all the difference. And I just think, and what, you know, what I find as well with this community is everyone's so absolutely humble and gracious, you know, they're, they're almost do, like do anything for you. And I think it's because 
we feel like we've been given a second chance. Yeah, I agree. I saw you post something. I can't. I can't remember where. I think you posted something around the idea of a lot of people who's, who's who alcoholics or people who struggle with sobriety are extremely sensitive people. Now, I'm not saying, and it's all, you've always got to be careful here that what you are saying isn't what you're not saying. Uh, what I'm not saying is that you can't be sensitive and not be an alcoholic, if you know what I mean. But I do, I do think there is a common feature here that a lot of people who fix their emotions with whatever it is, a drug or drink, and drugs was a massive part of my story. And, you know, I, I sort of always park that to the side uh, in my 20s and certainly in my 30s, early 30s. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's really, really important to, to know that there are people out there that you can reach out to and share. It, it's finding the similarities. It's finding the shared experiences. It's about not being preachy or judgmental about what, how you've got to where you've got in your sobriety. It's about all of you, um, you know, all of us kind of essentially looking out for each other and like you say it's a sort of tapestry of help isn't it yeah I mean I remember my first event and I didn't know what to do I think I was about three weeks sober and I saw something online uh Jamie Lee Grace the Radio 2 DJ she, she was actually an ex-wham backing singer as well which is oh, right brilliant yeah she held an event in Dalston and uh <clears throat> there were a lot of people like Claire Pooley Rock Sober Boys uh, William Porter was there. And I, I remember sitting on the train absolutely like a fish out of water thinking I would have gone to the pub first, probably had three yeah. Peronis, sat on the train, got off, found a pub there and then gone in there five points in. I walked in there, literally, it was heaving in there. There was one seat on this sofa. So everyone turned around like one of those Westerns. When oh, you yeah. The swing doors and the music stops. I sat in his chair like a great clumsy oaf, like Shrek. <laughs> and I, I knocked someone's drink over, and it was almost <laughs> like the record scratching and <laughs> it comes to end, you know what I mean? But afterwards, I met the Rock Sober Boys, and, I, you know, I, I regularly, well, out of lockdown, we, we go for curry and brick lane. and. Uh, yeah. Did you ever get those? I, I, I mean, I remember, it's funny, because you get the car, you get the literal car crash moments, you know, waking up in a cell, drink driving wife's held you out finger you know arm bleeding you're going to bleed to death unless you get to a hospital because you put your hand through a window you've almost set your hair on fire you know i mean i've had all those kind of moments of fucking total total yeah. carnage yeah and yet often when i look back there's a pub that and and this this is what i find so curious about the whole drinking thing and us us sober people yeah my daughter maddie she's 18 this year the one thing she wants to do is have a pint bought for her by her dad. And I'm going to do that for her. And I'm going to take her to the Nelly Dean, which is where I used to drink in Soho. And part of that for me is to go on a sort of pilgrimage to conquer that space. Not, I'm not going to, there's no way I'm going to pick up or anything like that. What's going to be more challenging for me is the, is the flood of memories. Mm. And when I'm standing at the bar, I'm going to order her a pint. We went into it before lockdown, but she was too young for me to get her a pint. Uh, I'm going to buy her a pint. But as I've always said to her, it's very hard when you know what drink can do and you look at your children and you want them to have, in inverted commas, a healthy relationship with alcohol. And I think I've said it before. You know, I want to stand there and say to her, this is where I stood at this bar. And I remember coming up here to get a drink because I was the first one in at about 4 p.m., that lovely thing on a Thursday when the weekend started at 4 p.m. because you could actually, you were freelance, so you're like, fuck it, starting now. And I said, and I looked at everything that was on offer 
and I'd lost all interest in all of it. I couldn't choose a drink. Mm. Of course, I chose a drink, but in my soul, I couldn't. And that for me is almost as arresting a moment for me because it happened in that pub. And I want to be able to say to her, look, just make sure you do not get to this point. This mm. is why, you, you know, I can't guarantee it. I can't control it. We, you know, I can't cause it. But likewise, just be mindful. I'm saying to you, you can have a relationship with alcohol, but don't have my relationship with alcohol because it ended up with me standing here literally like with my hands in the air going i don't know what to order not th- not because i was sport for choice because i didn't want any of it but i wanted all of it and i'll never forget that moment it was like a it was like being on bended knee in a in a in a, in a church but it was like it was the it was the bar <laughs> the bar was my uh, altar it's it's amazing how you explain things it's so sort of relevant to what experiences i've had you know i've i've had many pivotal moments in my life that been like that and it's really important yeah. what you say about not saying you know you better not drink because of this and that you you're educating her but you're leaving it yeah. up to her to decide and I, yeah. I i think that's such a brilliant way to do it you know i feel it's the only way sometimes because I, I mean i live in fear of it and i have to accept that i'm not going to be able to get it right because i have to take myself back and say to myself what would I have done? What was I doing when people tried to intercept me? Obviously not with the same as we've just discussed, tools and groups and op- opportunities on social media to help. But when people were trying to intercept me, did it change me? No. But if someone was not saying to me, if someone said to me, don't have anything, what would I do? I'd just fucking have it and I'd have loads of it and I wouldn't give a fuck about it. Yeah. But if I say to my kids, you know, and what they've seen, they've also seen the sacrifices I've made, you know, because you're an incredibly social guy and I'm looking forward to coming out of lockdown. I feel like, you know, one of the great things about lockdown is I'm incredibly sociable, but not very social. I'm quite shy, but I like when I feel comfortable and safe with someone, as I do with you, you'll get the, you'll get all of me and 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 we'll have a great time. But I kind of, I hold that back, not because it's precious, but because I'm, I feel vulnerable, because I feel shy, because I feel, you know, afraid, if you, if you want a better expression. Um, but when I feel safe, it's great. And she sees that, you know, it's that thing of allowing your children to see the vulnerable sides of it, but also the sacrifices. If I'm struggling with the fact that I'm not as social or sociable as I want to be, and that is a byproduct of having wrecked my relationship with alcohol, I want my children to see that because that will be the stronger lesson for them. They're not going to want that. You know, I'll be the martyr to the cause in that instance, in a sense. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. So now Nadia, she um, has your drink or two, doesn't she? Oh, she does. And in fact, and on that note, I mean, me and Nadia were just saying if if, if you and him, we should do a couple's chat at some point. We should all oh. do something. Um, she does. She does like a drink. And uh, I like I like having a drink. I mean, I, I don't I'm not I don't have a problem with the drink. I mean, does M she, she drinks, doesn't she? I like a fish. Yeah. <laughs> And how's that for you? She she is one of these people that she said to me, "Do you know what? I'm gonna have a glass of wine tonight." She, oh, she yeah. would make that stamp, and then when I see what's left in the bottle, it, she's had literally like a sherry glass full of wine. How do they and, do that? I know. And then she'll have a cup of tea. Oh. And it's like oh, that serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's, she hasn't got an issue with it at all i mean I, I i get i guess there are some some instances i mean there was a not like not, not i think just before we went into lockdown you know close family members i'm not going to name them because i don't want to incriminate anyone but they you know they're all getting a bit drunk they were having a bit to drink and it's that funny thing isn't it as the sober one 
I can be like you. I can be really fucking silly. I can enter. I can enter. I can be more drunk than drunk if I'm, you know, if I want to be. You know, I, that that doesn't worry me. But there comes a point when people are drunk where they're not even being funny drunk. They're just fucking boring and repetitive. And it's just going on and on and on. And there's no judgment in that. That's not like a boring, sober person saying, oh, you're all. it's not at all. There is the fun bit. But then even for when I was drinking, there's the really boring shit. And that's normally towards the end of the evening. And it happened here. And I remember thinking, I love this person so much who was really, really going on again and again and again. And I just looked at them and I thought, they're not going to remember this. I said, Do you know what, guys? I, I, I've earned the right to just go to bed <laughs> i'm just gonna leave yeah. this is point total disorientation and misunderstanding and, uh, and i just left and they forgot it and I, I and i walked away from it so it can get you know but that really happens nadia's very you know she can have a drink but she's not you know i mean she often says actually when we talk about it she says it could have been either one of us that tipped over the edge completely mm. you know, she's had massive alcoholic episodes in her life for sure with Nadia as well, I suppose this social side. Um, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, she's she's far more social than me. I mean, that's fine. I mean, she'll often she'll often ask me out to certain things. I mean, I'm not at all show busy. I'm not interested in all that stuff, you know. And you know, you could argue it's a bit po face, but I'm I'm just kind of like I'm just literally not interested. I'd much rather, like I did when you know when I was drinking. I mean, when I was drinking, once I drunk too much, it was like everyone's my friend. But at the beginning of an evening of even drinking, it was always like two or three people. I like to, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really intimate. It's really intense, you know, really intense and intimate. Then it exploded into everyone was intense and intimate. I'm a bit like that still now. I like little kind of little groups. I'm, you know, parties, you know, all the kind of air kissing, wah, wah, wah. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, working in television myself, you know, you have to do some of that. But that side of it, if I don't have to, I won't. And she, I think she at times would, I think I've said before, she would like it if I could just easily go to these things. But sometimes I don't want to go to them because they're just not my people. I'm not going to find anything in common with them. And the great thing about drink, and this this is something I do miss, is that if you're sat or standing with someone that you've got very little in common with, drink massively helps. Mm. There's, there's, no, there's no getting away from it. It's, it's called a lubricant for a reason. It, it, it lubricates, it fortifies, mm. it, it gets you through certain awkwardnesses and awkward situations. And that part of it all, I really miss when you're in a social situation. Because if you're in a social situation and people are going past that point of drinking, they haven't necessarily even gone to get blottoed, but they've all just gone past that point. It's, I find it very hard to get to that level. I find yeah. it very hard to get no, to that I understand. Level. I, I um, went to one of M's works do's, right? It was in the Savoy. Mm. And it was a black tie thing. Um, really, really posh. Everything paid for. And I was drinking then. And I was the one that was hounding the waitresses for the champagne. You know, I'd drink one down and then I'd take two off the tray. Yeah. And then get another one. And then we sat down for dinner and I could see the waiter actually, he knew what I was like within about five minutes because right. I kept getting to top my glass up. And I was with so many strangers that I was... Yeah. So when you say to me, oh, you're really sociable, and I'm actually not. Right. I'm really not. I'm very similar to you, but I think it's a persona that I come across as this yeah. like fun-loving guy, but I'm quite... A solitary sort of person. I well, like. You know, you're right. I mean, you look at my social media. I mean, all of our subs and followers. We've got over 120,000. You know, they they're all like, God, 
we get we get the totally non-shy you we get the kind of out there you you're you're right i mean you know, that's the one side of social media where it presents a certain veneer of a person. And because you're going on it, we're all turning the camera. It's red light moment, isn't it? It's kind of a red light zone, isn't it, for a moment? Because you're, you don't want to sit there being... I mean, imagine me turning something on going, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. what's the point? You yeah, know? or this... this pop- but that's good. It's interesting to hear. It's interesting yeah, to hear that you're, you're the is. same. And I've heard you on, a, on a, a live or another podcast with Alex and Lisa, and you, and you mentioned me in me, I think. And it said, you know, he realised what a miserable git I am. And actually, Em will pretty much agree that I'm one of the biggest miserable gits you'll ever meet. And that's why I know that we get on so well. Um, <laughs> a couple of grumpy old men in Cafe Nero. But um, no, no, but I get that. So this do I went to, right, um, it was literally glass after glass after glass. And I could feel myself getting really sloshed. Mm. And then it was the, that a band there. You can imagine at the Savoy. Yeah. And then it was, we um, went to the bar and she was dancing and I was getting three glasses of wine pretending to, and I was drinking all three and then going back to the thing. I was legless, mate. And there was this fool (laughs) me on the dance floor thinking he's John Travolta and I could (laughs) hardly stand up. I literally was legless. Oh no. And the next day I had, uh, I started a counselling college course, right? And it was my second day of this. It was an all day thing on a Saturday and everyone literally went, oh, you absolutely reek of wine. And I didn't know anyone really. And it's things like that. that And and I did that for two years. And in the end, I sacked it off because I just couldn't do the homework because I was doing the homework in the pub while I was drinking, you know, like it was just crazy. So when you look back at all those things and yeah, but it's interesting how you come across because up to you, because I'm organizing a social and whatever, but do you know what, Mark, that kind of feels different really because you haven't got someone leaning over you, spitting and stinking yeah, yeah. who's telling you the joke you heard 10 minutes ago. You're having conversations that you're going to remember and talk about for years to come. So Absolutely. And also, you're not sitting on a bar stool making all these grand plans. It's like, it's funny, you know, I remember for years when I was drinking, I'd talk about setting up a production company and making this show and making that show. It was only when I got sober that I set up the production company and made this show or made that show. You know, subsequently, you know, you get to another point in your life, you're thinking, okay, well, what's the next chapter of my life? What do we want to do? What I love about what you're doing is you talk about counselling there when you were drinking. You know, the desire to want to share uh, with others and help others. I mean, that is a massive tenet or cornerstone of the more conventional 12-step recovery thing. You know, wanting to take your message out, sharing your experience, and, and 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 allowing other people to kind of come in on that and, and I think what you're doing is great I think you know I mean likewise you know I'm I, I you know I genuinely want to be able to use these 16 years to the benefit of not just my daughters and my family but to everyone that we come into contact with you know in a sort of big mutually counseling fashion I think it I think it's brilliant what you're doing well I think like your honesty on podcasts like this is where you come across so well you know you you're really articulate and you're honest and that that's just brilliant and but that's what i wanted you on really because i know that you do speak from the heart and whatever and it's important because yeah people relate to that you know 
and, and it's really important to, I think, and you're very good at allowing it to happen. I mean, you know, in my job as a director of documentaries, you sit and you're encouraging people and facilitating people to open up, not in a manipulative way, though, obviously, you've worked in television, there are lots of editorials where it is manipulative. But where I've always been, in, I've always been interested in the human condition and, and getting people to open up. And what I always, whenever I get fearful, I always get fearful just before I'm about to be really honest, because I know that I can only be really honest. There's no, there's no bullshitting around this. Do you know what I mean? So it was really refreshing you taking me back so early on because I haven't, I haven't strolled past the six-year-old me in a long time. And it's good. It's really good and important to do that. It's really important to do that. Yeah. And, and it can be painful at times, but then okay. after that, it can be healing as well, can't totally. it? Because- totally, totally. You know, once you open that up, you can heal it properly rather than just put a plaster over it. And we, exactly. we all evolve and move forward, you know, and, you know, your 16 year journey is going to continue. And you've entered this new sort of way of sobriety, which is brilliant. And I just I just personally think you're amazing, mate. I really do. Oh, we've got to meet for that that coffee and croissant. Coffee and croissant. And I'll dip my croissant in your coffee. As the vicar said to the bishop, oh, God Almighty, it's going wrong again. Tyson and his tiger, and now it is. <laughs> yeah, avoid Tyson's tiger. <laughs> um, so, uh, just before we go, I want to touch briefly as yes. well on your other social media, which is—is um, is it Popcorn Junkies? Yes, movie channel. Yeah. I mean, I am an absolute film mate. I love a film. Well, then we're going to go and see films together. Yeah, I did mention before lockdown yeah. about Tap and Picture House because that's just amazing. Absolutely. Um, but I, I, when I became sober, that was one of the things that I really got into. Um, I used to go to bed quite early and, and get stuck into a film because it that's an escapism in itself, isn't yeah, it? Totally, totally. I mean, for me, you know, I mean, I went to film school. I went into television in order to make films. Uh, it's it's ironic that now uh, uh, you know a life and, and 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 work on social media is allowing those films to be made. You know, my passion is filmmaking, and we're doing it now, and it's happening, and it's brilliant. Um, my other passion is films, and you know, I think I just think they're just such wonderfully complicated. I think people can be a bit po-faced. Oh, Phil, you know, are you a film buff? It, you know. It's just it's just total escapism. It's mm. total escape. Whether it be horror, whether it be superheroes, whether it be uh, a, a North Korea, a South Korean art house movie, I just love it. It's you know it's another way of of experiencing and walking in other people's shoes. It's just I just love the movies. It's magic. Yeah, I do, and and it's funny because M she doesn't she she's got oh, the, really she's got the attention span. So we rarely watch a film together because after 10 minutes, you start fiddling with a phone or something like that. Yeah, so there's quite a few people like that. I mean, I know. Yeah. I was talking to Nadia's sister. She said, she said, I can't sit down and watch a movie. I said, what do you mean you can't watch a movie? It's like 19, you know, 90 minutes to do. Why not? You're missing out on a wealth of experience. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, though, it's it is pure escapism. Yes. And it can be education as well because it makes totally. it's thought-provoking. You know, sometimes I watch a Tarantino film and a lot of people might think they're just absolute violence, but there's certain no. parts of his films that I, I just, God, it, it brings up stuff in me as well. Oh, you know? totally. And a classic example of that at the moment for you or for any of your listeners is uh, the Riz Ahmed film, Sound of Metal, Sounds of Metal. It's about uh, a heavy metal drummer who suddenly loses his hearing. Ah. 
very challenging, could be triggering for some who, I don't know, have fears around that. But it's also a film about addiction, his addiction and his sobriety and how he holds on to it with the challenge of losing his ear. So like you say, you know, you tune in to watch something about a heavy metal drummer yeah. and suddenly I'm thinking about recovery and rehab and, oh, my God, you know, that's what I love about yeah, film. Yeah, me too, mate. So normally I end it with where can people find you, but I think you're all over the place, aren't you? Well, we're you yeah, YouTube, check out the Sawala Adelies. I'm on Instagram, Mark underscore Adelie. Uh, the Popcorn Junkies is on Instagram and YouTube. But yeah, you can find us all there. And, and like you, I mean, uh, only earlier this week, I, I dropped a mental health chat on the YouTube channel about return anxiety. It's not always about, you know, we, we don't, I mean, I have been diagnosed with depression and, you know, and I think that these sort of isms are always sitting behind a lot of alcoholism. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, you know, we did, a, I did a talk about that the other night and that, that a lot of people really connected with this idea that we all want to return to normal, but some of us actually found some comfort in losing some of the shit that was there before. So, yeah. uh, you know. Absolutely. Well, Mark, yeah, it's been you. an absolute pleasure, honestly. Oh, it really, it really has. Thank you. It's been um, really joyful. Yeah. Send yeah. my love to that amazing Nadia. Yeah. And likewise to your other half. <laughs> yeah. That'd be <laughs> uh, fuming after this. So you know, <laughs> that's when we'll have to go out and meet for coffee. Yeah. <laughs> meet, you at the, uh, meet you at the Clap and Picture House tomorrow at four. Well, no, they're not open yet, are they? <laughs> no, I know. I know. I can't wait for that. But I will see you soon, Mark. Thank will you so do. much for joining me. Thank you. I'll see you soon. Lots of love. And you, mate. See ya. Bye. 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 I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you have a moment, then please do leave a review so that more listeners can enjoy the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at SoberDave or drop me an email at info at davidwilsoncoaching.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great week and take care.